Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey folks, welcome back to the Well Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. Right on. So you might be finding this podcast on YouTube, and this is maybe the first time you've hung out with us on the podcast. We've done about 60 podcasts now and all conversations around learning how to hunt and adventures in the backcountry. Uh, you can find our podcast anywhere you download your favorite podcast, Eat Wild Podcast. Download it, like it, subscribe to it, and if you like your podcast here on YouTube, let us know and we'll keep doing it and we'll see how there's traction for this one. Okay, on this episode, I'm super stoked. We've got Adam Foss joining us. Adam is just an amazing human being. He's a conservationist. He's an amazing filmmaker. He takes beautiful pictures. He's an avid and passionate hunter and an adventurer. He's been all over uh, the world with his bow and done some super cool hunts and in this episode, we're hanging out, kind of talking about adventure hunt planning, talking a little bit about um, the type of gear that we bring for uh, for for these expedition hunts and how to stay lightweight while still staying prepared for um, the weather and the complexities of the hunts uh, that we take on. So this is a great podcast, and I, and I know you'll enjoy hanging out with Adam. Now, before we get started, I'm also excited to announce that Seek Outside, the, the folks who make amazing tents and backpack and ultralight gear have come on as a sponsor for the Eat Wild podcast. So that means that if you're a listener and you use the discount code Eat Wild, you get a deal on your next purchase with uh, Seek Outside. Now, and if you've been following along with us on our podcast, you know that I that I use their teepee tents with a little wood stove inside, and that's just a game changer for late season hunting or, or, any, or any hunts when you get wet and you want to dry out. It's just fantastic. Um, and then on this last uh, adventure, a couple of adventure hunts I had with my sheep hunt and my elk hunt, I was using uh, one of their packs made with their Ultra 400 fabric. Now, this fabric is like super bomber, super light, and also waterproof, and that's why I, I've been using it because I've been using it in combination with my my pack raft hunts and having that waterproof ability, waterproofing, or waterproof backpack. Essentially, is it just it, it helps with that whole kit of pack rafting and staying dry and uh, and being able to throw your bag in the bow of the boat and, and raft down the river. So it's a, it I. I I, I love that backpack this season. It's going to be a keeper in my in my set. Uh, they've just announced that 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 fabric, the Ultra Four Hundred fabric, is now available to everybody. Um, I, I was running a tester there uh, for the past year or so, so you can get your Seek Outside backpack and you can get a deal on it using Eat Weld, and you can um, yeah get out there with that ultralight backpack and be super happy too. All right. Um, other thing I should mention if you are interested in in doing your core class or learning how to hunt with Eat Wild. Uh, we've got our core classes online, so you can sign up there and it's self-guided learning series of our lectures. We've also got a few of our online how to hunt webinars are also online and they're all accessible through our website at eatwild.ca. All right, we'll get into this one now. 
See ya. Been following the Eat Wild program for like a while and I know it's something that's needed. I mean, I, I, I'm lucky enough to grow up in a hunting family and a lot of people are not and, and just, just getting over the hump, I think, of learning the basics of hunting. And I think two things that always come up that people ask me about, probably same as you and why you've developed some of the stuff that you've developed, how to butcher an animal in the field and, and what do you do when you actually are lucky enough to harvest something and gear and regulations and things that just, it's almost like another language. So it's cool. It's really cool what you do. Oh, yeah, man. Thanks. I was, I was stoked when I reached out to you and just and put it out there to join me on the podcast. And, um, and you were quick to respond and you were like, yeah, I'm in. I'm like, oh, right on. Okay. That's, that's great. And, uh, I don't know if you think like the, like, yeah, I mean, the, the podcast is a fair, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, what do you got a labor of love or something like that? I kind of enjoy it because I get to reach out to people and have these conversations. It kind of forces me into, particularly the last couple of years because of, you know, this sort of social isolation and uh, having to change how you take care of yourself in the, you know, mentally and physically, but having, you know, these check-ins and stuff like that, is, it's a great tool, but so th- thanks for coming on. So um, anyways, folks, I've got Adam Foss on the, on the Wild podcast. This is like one of my, like probably the biggest celebrity I've had on the podcast today. He's shaking his head. If he, no, <laughs> no, I'm stoked to have him on. I'm a big fan of the work that you do. And uh, I, I'd like to talk to you, Adam. I had a couple thoughts about chatting with you. I, I did catch one of your webinars on um, on uh, for Wild Sheep that you did last year, and there was uh, I think you're talking a little bit about what you do to prep for the mountains. And there was some some cool concepts that I really enjoyed that you talked about. It's a little bit about like what we don't hear enough about. It's like going heavy into the backcountry, like just taking a little bit of extra gear to stay, you know. Uh, you know, basically safe and, and to kind of cut down the risk a little bit. And I, and I want to come back to that conversation maybe a bit later in this combo um, and chat a little bit about that, but I, I'm, I'm keen to, to say hello and, and hear a little bit more about what you do and introduce you to the eat well community. So welcome, Adam. I'm glad to have you on. Yeah. Here. Thanks for having me, Dylan. It's a pleasure. We're here in frost, awesome. frosty Kelowna. It's relatively cold for us. <laughs> Tucked inside. Yeah. I, I was shoveling snow for the third, like the third time in a week in Vancouver. It's a, it's a bit of a trip for us here. So, um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a whole new world here for sure. Um, live with, and we got more coming. Like, <laughs> no. Yeah, this is not ending. How much snow is on the ground in the interior? I'm pretty close to the lake. I'm on a lake elevation, and we for sure have 18 inches. I would say well over a foot. My wife Frankie and I were out on the streets today pushing some guy in his Austin Mini out of the snowbank and people are spinning out and they're haven't caught up to plowing and it's quite cold and unseasonably cold so it's yeah I don't know what's next I mean this year is so crazy because we've got wildfires hottest year on record six months ago right the world is going up in flames then we've got the floods then we've got this kind yeah. of really cold snow, and then we're gonna get locusts or and something. We got this baseline of COVID through everything, yeah. which just kind of has everybody on edge. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel good, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm, like, it's just, yeah, for sure. But but you, you got to look for the you know you look for the positives, right? And and uh, 
I see, I'm hopeful that we see a way forward and stuff. And, um, and you know what, we're so blessed. We're so fortunate because, you know, the things that you like to do and the things that I like to do, but uh, you know, we can still, for the most part, have been able to still do these things. Um, I'm a little bit worried about too much snow in the interior on all that winter range. So for the critters, yeah. so, um, you could do me a favor, start shuttle, sh- shoveling out some of those winter, those south-facing slopes, you know, to get the snow off for the deer, you know, give them somewhere to hang yeah, out. Yeah, there. Are, I was just hiking up at Knox Mountain here, the local spot here, and uh, yeah, there's a bunch of does just piled up down low and ripping pine needles off the bent-over trees. They're Okanagan deer. They're they're they came here to retire, and so I don't yeah. understand. I don't understand. They're they're kind of wondering the same thing that everyone else is here that's retired. I thought yeah, the warmest place in Canada. All the rose bushes are covered up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, what's going on? <laughs> Those Victoria deer are like questioning their their decisions as well. Yeah, big time. <laughs> and I grew up in Alberta, and I uh, I'm getting softer now because it's way colder over there. And even I, if it gets to minus twenty, it's too cold. Yeah, nice totally. I was complaining about having to shovel snow, and I was talking to uh, Jeff Singer the other day from from the Wild, the one of the one of the star, stars of that show, and talking about wild food and adventures and I was complaining about moving snow around and how cold it was in Vancouver. Then I realized I was talking to somebody who lives an hour North Edmonton, you know, on a quarter section and probably spends 30% of his life moving snow around. So yeah, we got it pretty good. It'll rain in a week and it'll all be forgotten here pretty quick. Anyways, people don't want to hear about (laughs) I'd like to know. (laughs) Um, Hey, uh, so um, tell me a little bit about what, what you do with your, with your production company and what, what your job is basically. Well, I think we probably have one of the best jobs that exists out there. It's kind of wild that we can get people to pay us to do the things that we get to do. Um, but we've been really fortunate. My wife and I run a small production company where we do video and photography for a handful of select outdoor hunting and fishing brands. And we, we just work with a few companies and a lot of awesome freelancers, photographers, editors, writers, graphic designers that help us do what we do. And we're just a two person team, my wife and I, and we have a great extended team. We have just a wicked couple of clients that, that really believe in the stories that we like to tell and and believe in a lot of the same conservation organizations that we're involved in. And man, it's pinch me. It's every time I kind of wonder about what it would be like if I had a real job or sort of went more traditional in a career path. I'm kind of hit over the head with how great it is to do something you're passionate about, wake up every day and and literally kind of have to rip myself away and lots of editing right now because it's like the end of the hunting season and I have to rip myself away from the computer. I'm looking back at all these photos over the year that I got to go to these places and, and more importantly, hang out with a lot of really cool people and meet new people and hunt with old friends and family too. And so it's a long winded answer, but I mean, I feel it's like extremely lucky to be able to do those sorts of things. So we're kind of providing photography and and video work for these companies on like a commercial level, for sure. I mean, shooting products that are going to show up in marketing campaigns and things like that. And that pays the bills, but we're pretty passionate about wherever we can poke in to do wildlife docs and support what the BC government might be trying to do in terms of wildlife management or wild sheep society, wild sheep foundation, 
this mule deer study that's going on here in the Okanagan, things like that, things that I know you've been a part of and are passionate about too. That stuff is where the rubber meets the road for us. And the, the commercial side of the business just sort of lets us pay the bills and upgrade our camera gear. And, uh, and on the background, we can do some meaningful projects, but at the same time, we're really lucky. Like I said, we work with a few companies that they believe in the same stuff that we believe in. And so it's sort of the rising tide raises all boats and that they're, using their reach and using their business to support conservation organizations that we fortunately believe in as well and like sort of spread this this wildlife advocacy um and just keep this whole thing going i mean that we're trying to keep going and so um yeah it's all one big it's all one big happy family over here my wife and i are we work together. We want to kill each other probably 20% of the time, maybe 15. I'd say like 20% right now because we're kind of cooped yeah. up inside a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's reasonable. Uh, yeah. And 80% of the time we're so loving life. I, I got, maybe 85. <laughs> That's a pretty good bet. Maybe 85. That's not bad, man. That's pretty good to be able to say that. And, uh, and I had one of these questions. It was like, is this something you can do forever? And is this something you see yourself doing forever? Or do you see a, do you see a different path? Ahead? It's a great question. I think we talk about it all the time too. I think you sort of see this in high levels of seasonal work where whether it's on the guide outfitting side of things or what we do with regards to photography and film, any sort of seasonal gig, I think, gets when you're away for an extended period of time. I think it can it can lose its luster it hasn't, it hasn't for us, fortunately, but I think if we were going to have kids and sort of settle down more, um, it would be, it would be pretty challenging to be gone for 10, 14, 15, 20 days at a time. And so that's sort of where I've seen people that do a similar path that I've kind of modeled parts of the business off of is how do they sustain being gone and, and sort of support their partner. And if they have a young family, make sure that they're there for them. And, balance the priorities. I think the X factor that hopefully we can keep this thing going is we do it together and we sort of design, like are really fortunate enough to be able to design a life around the things, around work and family and things that are important to us and and have the great luxury to be able to do that. So if we can continue to do that, I think it's possible to maybe scale back a little bit of the like super extensive travel, but, um, yeah, if we had a kid, take the kid on the road, or or sort of find some more local, smaller stuff to do, rather than the you could talk to yeah. Sorry, yeah, you could talk to like you could talk to Sitka about maybe like doing a baby carrier <laughs> on the front of you. I don't know if we go on the front or the back, but like kind of go next to your binoculars somehow. Oh yeah, I could probably I could see it working. I think so. Is, yeah. I think so. That'd probably be the big factor. But I hear they're really useful. I mean, as far as as far as like stories to tell and and things to. Um, shoot and, and projects to scratch the itch. I mean, honestly, we just touch the tip of the iceberg every year. I mean, we sort of, we're, we're so small. We, we're, we would like to think we're small but mighty, but I mean, some of these projects and with the way that the seasonality of this world works, I mean, you have one fall, you have one summer, you have one winter, you have one spring, and a lot of really cool wildlife works going on in the winter and spring when you might be editing other projects or some cool adventure hunts that are going to different parts of the world that haven't been explored or if they have, they haven't been photographed or filmed in a really beautiful way. 
those things all overlap. And so we only can do what we can do with the days in the calendar that there is. So um, on that token, there's no shortage of, of cool stories to tell and, and, and things that we think are important. It's just a matter of uh, a matter of time. So there's runway there. There's definitely a runway. Yeah, right on. I was one of the questions I was going to ask you. I, I, I did a bit of you know surfing around, looking at your stuff ahead of this conversation, and I, there's a couple of things. I, I'll ask you the question. Uh, so, what, what when you're telling stories, particularly around hunting, what are some of the themes that you're trying to bring out in that storytelling? It's a great question. I think for me personally, it's it's I usually am sort of trying not to, but but do recognize that I apply a ton of personal bias into these different stories just because it's it's a passion of mine. I am a hunter. I'm interested in the wildlife and the landscape and the places that these hunts occur. So I, I think a big part of hunting for me personally is place. So where this hunt is happening, how you get there, what it smells like, what it looks like, what it tastes like, what other animals are there, what the people there are doing if there is any people what the history is either either from a colonial perspective or a first nation perspective from an outfit you know an outfitter that might be on the landscape or mining resource extraction like what sort of parts and pieces all go into like this fabric of the place because hunting for me is so entrenched in where it happens and fortunately where it happens is or where we choose to pursue it is in wild and remote places where they have this really, really rich, interesting history. So that's a big one. That's a big one is, is, um, is place. And then, I mean, we might've, I think it'd be fair to say it's evolved. I think initially I think as a person who wants to challenge themselves to go to bigger mountains and, and, steeper terrain and harder animals to hunt to kind of push that edge hard, 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 hard mm-hmm. for sure. For the last 10 years, I would say, or at least the last eight and probably in the last couple of years, I think there's a little bit of sort of, and maybe you've experienced this in your own life, having a few more gray hairs than I do, but I still have lots of gray hairs, actually quite a few. <laughs> you just shaved for the, I actually so. did. Yeah. I was like, that's horrible. But I need a haircut. <laughs> it's hiding that gray in your beard. I know. Yeah you end up slowing down a little bit on these adventures and kind of building in a little bit of extra time and trying to get comfortable with just being there. And, and from a hunting tactic perspective, it probably helps you a little bit because you're just sort of sitting on a great glassy knob, looking, 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 looking for two or three or four or five days. And I think you would get a little bit more out of it. I mean, I've definitely, I just think about the way that we used to sheep hunt as kids. We would just, load up with way too much shit, hike way too far, sit down for literally minutes, just like minutes, sit down, nothing here. Let's keep going. We got to get further and further and further and have that headwater fever. And now it's a little bit slowing it down and kind of getting into, getting into the place and not being in such a hurry to leave, whether you're successful or not, doesn't really matter. Bringing fishing rods and fishing, seeing a little bit more of the country and less about just like charging so hard. So, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say a theme is sort of just the other parts of the hunt. Um, whether that be the relationship with the people that you're sharing the hunt with or the other parts that are happening, not just the animal that you're pursuing, but other wildlife and 
I mean, the weather patterns and sunrises and sunsets, even just, I just love, I don't know about you, but it was like one of my favorite parts about hunting, especially in the North is when you're in the North in late August, early September, or even into late September is literally you're, if you're on, if you're lucky enough to be there and you're on a, a, a multi-day trip, you're there for seven or 10 days, you will literally see the colors change every single day. When you get up out of your tent, the willows are, oh, are, yeah. are going from orange to red and they're trickling down the valley and maybe it snows one morning and that part of it i mean just do you actually be somewhere long enough to see nature unfold slow enough is is a pretty beautiful thing and that and that's great that's that's one of my favorite moments like there's a where i hunt elk hunt elk i hunted the same kind of had the same camp we went for 15 years to the same camp and there's this one pronounced mountain right across from us that it just got all all the deciduous northern plants on it so it really captures the all those like almost like a rainbow of fall colors and that rainbow just like slides down the mountain over the course of the week it's just such a such a cool thing man. yeah and you're kind of sitting there sure. oh i should be glassing right now because you're just looking around and for me i'm I'm, I'm, I always bring way too much camera gear, whether I'm hunting for myself or just on a personal trip or on a work trip. Either way, I've got a couple of cameras and I'm taking photos and shooting time lapses and looking up at the stars and, and sort of just soaking it all in and forgetting to hunt sometimes too, <laughs> because it is, yeah, right. Well, it's, it's, it is why you're out there too, man. Yeah, I mean, I that, know. I, that's what I, I'm getting more to that is more. More time out there, longer time, deeper connection with the place and the people that you're with. More, I don't know, more Carolyn's and coffee in the morning and whiskey around a fire and less just dawn patrolling, just like hammering. Except when I hunt with my brother because he's a, he charges harder than anybody, any reasonable person should. But when I'm hunting with him, I'm just trying to keep up, trying not to die, trying to keep up with him up the mountain but is it competitive with your brother um actually bring that out i don't really think we're competitive with each other we're definitely competitive with the animal and just growing up sheep hunting together and and sort of also apart there's just a huge level of i don't know if i would define it as competition he's he's definitely a competitive person and i'm a very competitive person as well not with each other we played we played well, you're from the coast, so we played junior A lacrosse together for he's two years older than me, so we had five years of junior. I played with him for three. And actually I finished up my career in New West for the Bellies. Go Bellies. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and so so we played on teams with each other and we beat the shit out of each other. I mean, we we <laughs> killed each other. I mean, my nose is like it's a little bit yeah, it's not terrible, but it's crooked for sure. Busted right here. Yeah, I can really only breathe through half of it. Um, that's from your brother. Well, I mean, growing up, yeah, we used to kick the crap out of each other. But <laughs> once we reached a certain age, I mean, kind of that high school, like he was sixteen, I was fourteen, or seventeen, fifteen, sort of just became best buddies and played sports together. Had all the same friends. We were two years apart in high school, so we shared a lot of buddies that were. I was in grade 10, he was in grade 12. We had a lot of buddies that were in grade 11 and I had buddies that were his buddies in grade 12 and it was awesome. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say we're competitive with each other, but we're definitely competitive with the animal, I guess, a little bit, right? Like thinking about, okay, 
the animals out there, these sheep are migrating. What like what are they doing right now? And he's definitely keyed in on that more than any other human being I've met in my life, and and more than me. But he's thinking about things all year long. I remember we finished a hunt. This was probably 2018 or 2019, a couple of years ago. I just popped over to Alberta to help him look for sheep. The last, just the general season, the last seven days of October. His birthday's October 29th. And okay. the last day of sheep season is October 31st. And he spent his birthday in sheep country, I think, every year for the last, I don't know, probably 16 or 17 years in a row or something like that. So he milks like the most out of the season that he possibly can. But um, I was over there with him and it was really cold. It was just a, oh, it was just a bitch. It was just really, really cold. It was minus 34 at the parking lot and on the mountain, it must have been something in the high minus thirties and without wind chill, it was cold. Like it was really, really cold. And so Jeez. we finished the hunt. We, we saw some sheep. We had a great time. Um, you know, we stumbled out, licked our wounds. I had to dump some photos and do some laundry and jump out to the next trip. And, you know, I'm kind of, after you finish a hunt sort of of that nature, you just sort of kind of stumbling around, you're drinking coffee, you're just, you know, you feel good. You feel like you just did something, but you're also kind of like moving at about, I'm moving in second gear a little bit and it's eight in the morning or something like that. The season literally just ended yesterday. He rolls downstairs. I'm at his house in West, West Calgary and he's got all this shit on. And I ask him, what are you doing? And he goes, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go glass. I'm going to go glass and see if I can just, see what's moving and and go to a different spot and see if anything's moved into where we were or these other valleys that all connect. And he's like, you want to come? I'm like, fuck no, I am not going to do. I mean, I'm, I'm all, I, I my like fourth and fifth toes just thought out. So I'm, I've got to do some laundry. I got to get my life together, have four or five cups of coffee and then even think. And he's, he's like, okay, I'm out of here. See ya. Jump in the truck, takes off. So, you know, literally as far away as you get till next season is the day after the season ends. And he's kind of going, well, <laughs> hey, I got a Sunday and, you know, I got the morning to go. And he lives really, that, that's the really cool thing about um, Alberta. I mean, good and bad, I guess. You're living, you know, he lives in, in Calgary and he lives between 45 minutes to an hour and a half from, from primetime Bighorn Sheep Country. So he's out every afternoon in the summer and in the fall he's out all the, all the time on the weekends and so he can he can load up be like and he drives way too fast be sitting on the side of the road glassing for sheep or, or at a trailhead hiking in right whereas here in bc we're 22 hours or, or 18 hours to get to About that, stone yeah. sheep country Depends right on, yeah 18 to 27 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then you're there and you're flying or you're hiking or whatever you're doing and uh you're just committed, which is a totally different experience. And one that I personally love because I actually don't love the one foot in one foot out where you're sort of, you could get back home or you could, you know, you got work off or you got things to do, or you might've said you'd be meeting someone and you just kind of have in the back of your mind that maybe your buddies are going to get wings or your wife is telling you to get your ass home and clean the garage because you haven't for three months it's nice to just not have that. It's nice to be out there and you can't get back and you're just there and you can only make the most of it, which is why I like those sort of longer trips where they might require you to 
to fly in or something of that nature. Well, then you're sort of you're sort of stuck in there too, and you have to make the most yeah. of it. And, and that's when some of the cool stuff starts to happen. Exactly. So I had a question. I, I was going to ask you, you kind of already. I, I, who who uh, <clears throat> who else do you like to hunt with? Obviously your brother. Yeah. Um, but yeah, who, who you like I grew up hunting with my dad and brother. Loved hunting with the both of them. That's where I learned learned how to hunt. I mean, I don't know. I mean, hunting is. I I. I feel as if there's so much information about hunting now and out there on the internet and all these resources and people can just start podcasts. And I mean, I, we just, I just think of all the stupid stuff that we did, all the mistakes that we made growing up gear, gear for sure. But just, I mean, there wasn't even really great gear anyways, but um, so that's sort of my, I have lots of good memories, mostly from misadventures, just just from doing everything that you possibly could wrong. But um, I've recently been hunting with my wife, Mar, who who doesn't hunt herself. She loves to be in the backcountry, backpacking and camping. She's never pulled the trigger or released an arrow. She just loves to be there. She will come on anything, except she's starting to. She wants to retire from the late season. She's she's doing a hard stop on mm-hmm. mid mid to late October because I have drug her on one too many, just really, really cold ones. And she's sort of questioning how much fun that actually is, but she loves everything up to that point. Um, a few really good friends that I made while I was traveling back and forth to Bozeman, Montana. I've got buddies down there um, that we try to do an elk hunt every year or so. And Oh man, I mean, I don't have a huge Rolodex of people that I hunt with. Um, I'll hunt with my cousin and a couple other buddies here in the Okanagan. Um, one thing I try to do every year is to take somebody who's new at hunting, hunting. And that might be for three days or it might be for a week, but just get somebody new into hunting or a new version of hunting. Maybe they've hunted from a truck only and I can help them go into the backcountry for a long weekend or something of that nature because I think there is a there is a lack of mentorship and there is tons of information that's out there, but I don't necessarily think that you have the same ability to learn as fast as you possibly could from just from from videos and, and things like that. I think it's like pretty nice. I mean hunting there's so much of it that is um situational dependent and you're just sort of I don't know. I mean, why are we going here? I'm not really sure. I think it just looks like the right place to be. So, and I'm definitely not an expert hunter. I think I can speak to a lot of mistakes that I've made and hopefully help the people that I am going with not make those mistakes. But then we hit it at the top of the podcast too. I mean, the butchering thing, the the, the breaking down an animal in the backcountry and not just gutting it and dragging it to a vehicle um, is super intimidating. And I have some friends that are hunt curious, I would call it. And the thing that's holding them back is, and especially holding them back from going solo is if I get an animal down, I just don't, I I don't have the confidence that I will know how to take care of it. And I don't want to be in that situation because I worked so hard and respect this animal so much that if I lose any of the meat or I just do it wrong, I'll feel horrible about it. And I, and I definitely respect that. My encouragement to people usually is, well, 
there's actually this part of your brain that knows exactly how to do everything because it's the same way you're sitting there, you got a roasted turkey, you, you know, maybe it doesn't, you don't cut it up as perfectly as it could, but all the meat gets off of it and it gets onto the plate and people eat it. I kind of say the same things about an animal. I mean, yes, there is some tri- tri- tricks and tips, but um, yeah. So I think that is a huge part of it. And so I try to get out with somebody who's new every year, um, which I had an awesome trip this year with a couple of buddies and the comment, oh man, I just had the comment that stuck with me is we were hiking in, it was a Friday, it was just a weekend warrior situation, just get off work and roll and jump in the truck. And this friend of mine, he's recently had twins and he owns a gym. So he's, he's dealing with everything that a gym owner has been dealing with the last year and a half, which is um, shutdowns and just, just challenges of, of running in a, global pandemic and you just really you kind of see it wearing on him. and he he had hunted he has hunting license and his firearms certificate and uh his wife actually said hey you need to take you need to take this guy out i mean he'd love to get out he just needs to get out right so we go out peel out the south this friday afternoon we're kind of hiking always hiking in a little bit too late and we kind of this trail goes through this valley bottom and then it switch backs up and it breaks out of the alpine and by then it's completely dark zero light pollution, full stars, no moon, just beautiful. Right. I mean, just, and he sort of gets out and he looks around and he, he said two things I'll never forget. He said, I don't know the last time I've seen the stars. And the other thing he said is what do I do with these thoughts that are in my head right now? I mean, I'm just, he, he said, I'm just sort of, I'm finding myself just thinking about all these things that have happened over the last six months or a year, a year and a half of my life. I'm remembering things. I'm, I'm, he's like, how do I deal with all this stuff? And mm-hmm. I just said, well, Hey, Hey, well, usually kind of find it takes between two and four days. Those things settle to the, to the, you know, the mud sort of settles. You see a little bit clearer. You're, you're looking for animals, you're engaged in a hunt and, and you just sort of have this um, experience where you can process all these things that you just, for some reason, we just seem to cram them down or tuck them away or whatever we do. And, and those are two things he said to me. I'm like, and, and I'm fortunate enough to do this stuff quite a bit and be in those places. But he just, he just sort of vocalized it in a, in a specific way that was, I don't know last time I've seen the stars and man, like I have all these thoughts in my head. What do I do about them? And um, I'm, I'm sort of, it makes me feel lucky that I get to do those things. And I think he's not alone. I think we have a massive amount of people that, that couldn't remember the last time they saw the stars. And I mean, like really see the stars, not, not could see some stars, but I mean, really see the stars. And so that part is, I mean, that's sometimes like my favorite hunt of the year is just doing that. And and hunting was, I mean, for all intents and purposes, terrible. There was quite a bit of hunting pressure and, we saw a few deer and you know, whatever. I mean, it was great. It was a, uh, it was a really cool experience. That's a really cool. Uh, I, and those two things are so connected when someone, you know, I haven't seen the stars and what do I do with these thoughts in my head? I mean, it's, a, it's a, like, it's like a neon sign flashing. It's like, Hey, this is, this is, you need to be here. Yeah. This is, this is good for you. You need to find this. Cause a lot of it for a lot of, for a lot of folks finding that is, is difficult well, and take, it can be a journey to get there and, and, you know, thousands of dollars of the therapy to help you will just be helped by going on a on a walk in the forest and, and getting some 
you know, nature, nature's medicine. Yeah. Right? So what's your, no, that's, that's what's your cool. experience with doing some of those? Cause you teach courses and things like that. I mean, what, what do you, what's your thoughts on getting people out like that? Well, that's a, the, yeah, I, I think about this a lot about like that, that point where you have an impact on a person that sort of, it, it's funny cause the people like they come to, to eat wild say, or a course and they're like, I want to fill my freezer with organic meat. Right. Or I want to carry on this this lineage of my you know that of this way of life that I've lost connection with or whatever, and they're, they're trying to find their way back to something, um, but like nobody, I don't think people realize what's actually going to happen, and that's this sort of like it becomes first of all it becomes a way of life because you're pretty quickly if you if you go for this it becomes a year round connection to nature and your food and it builds this like crazy community instantly like you all of a sudden have this thing that people will talk about endlessly and get excited about the day after the hunting season ends and and plan the next trip like so like these elements that are really missing for people especially the people are starved for right now like community being one connection with nature purpose Mm -hmm. uh, connection to nature food like these things are so important and like all like it just it's just this amazing experience that people get out of it and so like i could talk about it for hours of but but you know the mental health thing is, is just it's a huge one for me um, and how much it just you see people reset and connect and they're just like they can feel their feet on the ground for the first time and they can they actually can feel the oxygen coming into their bodies and they can see that clarity that mud clears and that clarity it's just like clear all of a sudden it's like yeah i remember on our, on our sheep hunt this year like it was a brutally hard at times but every time it got hard i just felt like another layer of that COVID stress just like falling off my body. Like I just like peeling away and I could just feel a little bit lighter and a little bit better for the first time. And what was, has been a very stressful couple of challenging years or year with, with work and work and family, everything. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, man, that's, that's pretty cool that you, you made time for that. I was thinking about, uh, one of the reasons why I asked that question is I, I know, I know that you hunt with, with, with Ray Frankie yep. and I, I'm, there, yeah. Okay. And, I'm sure she's not. So, so I guess my question is like, she's no doubt a, a, probably a small person, uh, a smaller person. And yes, I am asking you this question because because um, I hunt with a lot of women, and there's uh, and and this year I'm, I'm going out. I'm gonna we're planning uh, Mickey's first adventure hunt. So we're so she's she's a little person, and we're gonna do a caribou hunt, flying caribou hunt. Cool. And it's a little bit different, right? Because you know if you go with your bro who's 200 pounds and can pack you know loaded 100 pounds if they have to and like it's it's a, it's a different reality when your partner weighs 105 pounds and there's just what's what you're what's possible or what you're capable of doing and 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 you know for one thing i want everybody to have a good time be successful but what you know so having spent some time doing this is there some thoughts around do you have any thoughts around how to how to make a trip like this more accessible to people who are you know not 200 pounds and can't necessarily pack 100 and five pounds on a on a pack out yeah it's a, it's a really good question and i think in in some ways i mean i, I don't know if this is the exact correct way of, of approaching it but in some ways i mean i've had this conversation with a lot of people about their their kids maybe they're 13 or 14 and they're saying hey i want to take my son on their first backpacking trip adventure-based hunt and they're sort of what's the best thing to do I was like never treated as if I couldn't do anything 
in, in my life by my, my dad and same with my mom. My mom's a high school guidance counselor. And basically, I mean, she gave me a book when I graduated high school and just, or sorry, university that was basically said, Hey, you can do any job that you want. The job that you want might not even exist right now. And the world needs people who are alive and basically kind of follow your passion in a very less cliche, cheesy way that probably this comes across in this podcast. Maybe just edit this part out and skip forward <laughs> to what I'm trying to say, which is I was never told, Hey, you can't do this. I'm a, I'm a small guy. I was always small in sports. Frankie is five foot one on a good day. I was just never told, Hey, you, you can't do this or you're not big enough. It just wasn't, it was just a non-factor. And so Frankie grew up in Seattle. She went to school at Simon Fraser down in Burnaby where we met and we did the um, sort of a popular, super popular hike now, but we did um, the Black Tusk, which is in Garibaldi Provincial Park on our yeah. first, I wouldn't call it a first date because I, I mean, in college, whatever. I mean, we're, we were drinking beer at the Mountain Shadow, which is RIP Mountain Shadow, North Burnaby, little pub at the mm -hmm. base of the hill that was gone. Um, and they built a bunch of condos there. So anyone who's down on the coast, Used to go there 10 years ago or 15 years ago, however long ago that was. Anyways, I digress. That was, uh, we, we did the Black Tusk at the end of October or something. And we had nothing. We just had our little flip phones for light. Frankie was wearing running shoes. She coined the term tennis shoe, tennis shoe summit at the time. It was basically doing a, doing a summit in your little tennis shoes and scrambling up there. And she didn't know. I mean, she didn't know. This is, I mean, it's not, it's not psychotic it, by no means dangerous but it was pro i think that i can't remember what that hike is it might be shit seven 17 k in and 17 k out or 17 k round trip i don't know it's a pretty good day for someone who's just barely getting into like any form of hiking point of the story is she just kind of was in the deep end right away and she had no idea that that maybe that that was a bit abnormal and then the same thing with hunting i mean she had no idea Hey, we're going to go on, on an archery sheep hunt, or we're going to go to Spain and hunt Ibex because we got to hang out with this client that we met in Germany at a trade show. We're going to go hunt Ibex or we're going on a goat hunt. And um, we flew into a, a spot to hunt goats that she had a really high interest in backpacking. She just wanted to go explore this area. And I said, okay, sweet. There's an LEH goat tag there. I will draw it. Oh, I drew it. Okay. I'll, I'll pack the goat tag around, but this is like more of a backpacking trip um, until we saw some goats and, chased them around just a whole, a whole other different story and totally just had the whole experience had the bushwhacking had the grizzly bear with three with sow with three cubs and saw the caribou and saw the arctic fox that like runs up to your tent and basically sticks his head in the tent and the weather and all those sorts of things and in some ways it was a horrible experience coming out and getting all that sort of bushwhacking off the top of the mountain and then the plane picks us up and she looks back down and she looks at me and i'll never forget this and goes I would do anything to, to just restart that trip right now. And wow. it's, I mean, we all have it. I mean, we, we, we get down a trip. It could be win, lose, or draw, hard or easy. I mean, usually more on the hard side. And we have that feeling. It's a little bit, a little bit oh, it's over. It's over. I, actually, can you, and it was a through hike. We flew into a lake, hiked 75 or 80K to another lake and flew out and was like, could you actually just fly us back to the first lake and we'll just do this all over again? <laughs> um, which, you know, this is in 2000 and what year has that been? 2010 or 2011, 2011. So 10 years, 10, 10 or 12, 10 or 11 years ago now. Um, 
that was our first like backpack hunt experience, just like in head first, never was told, Hey, you know, this is going to be really hard. Or, you know, I think there was a level of dialogue of being properly prepared. And maybe this is where I'm like dovetailing into some form of actual rational thought that can be applied to anybody else. Cause I'm, I actually don't know if this is a do as I say, do as I say, not as I do type situation. Cause I don't know if that's the best. Um, but I think one thing is never tell anybody that they can't do something. Um, dovetailing into some of the stuff that we did talk about, which is, I mean, the two, the two things that are going to kill you are boots that don't fit properly and a pack that doesn't fit properly. And then broader, broader is the wrong gear. But I think gear is important. The right gear sort of, we're so good now. I mean, there's so many companies out there making technical apparel, good lightweight packable rain gear and synthetic base layers and insulation packages and really small tight weight and, and volume packages and that stuff is all taken care of it's a function of money it does take a lot of money sometimes but you can kind of cobble that stuff together or borrow it or figure out a way to put that together the gear is sort of taken care of for the most part but the boots and the backpack you have to have them you have to have them broken in you know you have to throw 40 pounds in a pack to mow the lawn or to hike the local mountain or walk your dog or just do anything there's no replication for that it doesn't matter if you you're a CrossFit athlete or uh, an ultra distance runner, the pack and the boots will kill you. I mean, I've seen it a dozen times. It's like someone who's super in shape, they get blisters, they turn in, they turn into pudding. I mean, and I do the same thing. I mean, if I, if I don't have enough days on the boots and it's less about the boots breaking in, it's more about the foot breaking into the boot. It's over. It's just, it's just hard enough already out there. You have to ha- kind of have those things. So I'd say preparation in the sense of, you don't have to be in crazy good shape, although it makes it more fun. You don't have to be Hulk Hogan. You don't have to be 200 pounds. Um, you just have to be prepared a little bit. And those two things I think are huge. Um, and I, man, one thing I've noticed is women are, are quite a bit mentally more tough than men. And Frankie's mindset is she doesn't, she in some ways doesn't know what she doesn't know. She doesn't know that this is maybe hard doesn't have any scale that this is more challenging than another hunt that she might try she just sort of plugs along super mentally tough she enjoys it as it kind of gets harder she kind of goes oh i see this is i I get it i get what's going on here this is why you guys like this shit because it is super mentally and physically challenging um so it's it's they're pretty good to go i mean men sometimes are, are are thinking too much and kind of Oh man, this is really hard. And and Frankie's just like, well, hey, I, I like to climb that mountain. I'm just gonna keep putting one foot after the other. And we had this conversation. We did a pretty extensive sheep hunt this year, just the two of us, which we've done. We try to do every year, every other year, where it's just the two of us. Something really cool. It could be a hunt. It could be a fishing trip. Um, and this year we're kind of looking at the spot and we're kind of sizing it up. And we're like, oh man, this is gonna be who knows what we're getting into here. And she just basically said, Hey, look, I can't go as fast as you. I might not be able to go as fast as your brother, but I'm not going to quit. And it might take us three days to get there instead of two, but I'm going to be right behind you. And that's pretty damn cool to have that support. And, and, you know, she's carrying the mental load a lot of times too, where she's, she's wants to stop and look at the fish in the Creek and just look at them for a couple hours. She wants to, look at the flowers. She wants to see, she sees lambs and ewes and she's, she 
rips the spotter away from me. She wants to look at every little, she wants, you know, I'm like, you, okay, you know, she's like, give me that thing. She wants to look at little baby caribou. <laughs> you know, she wants to look at all those things, right? And seeing that through someone else's eyes is a really, really cool thing. So um, I think that you don't have to kind of say, hey, well, this is going to be really hard and you're not going to be able to do this. It's like, man, a little bit of preparation, I love get that, the right man. gear, get in there and then jump in the deep end, jump in the deep end. And I think it can go two ways. I think it's like, you know, there's a great sheep hunting quote. You're either, after your first sheep hunt, you're either a sheep hunter for life or you never be caught in a damn mountain again. And and you could apply that to caribou hunting or backcountry elk hunting or any sort of hunt that's just dive in, have the full experience. It doesn't always have to be fun. It's good for you. It's good for your brain. It's good for your body. It's one of the coolest things is like the relationship that develops and it develops between two dudes on a hunt, but to see it kind of develop between your partner and I mean, this trip was just, it was so cool. And coming out, she was sort of, she's more tentative at the beginning, which is interesting too. I've noticed between men and women, or maybe just Frankie and other people more tentative at the beginning, kind of wading in. Oh, this is going to be hard. This is steep. My pack feels heavy. I should have trained more shit. I can start to get hot spots. Then by the end of it, she's, Again, like that story that I t- said, when the planes pick us up, give me another one. I want to go again. Let's start at the, whereas for me, sometimes you're kind of, you're jacked up. You're at level 11. You got your pack. You're, you're just ready to tear up the mountain at the beginning. And then you sort of get beat down. You get a little bit more tired than, than, I mean, we were out there for, I think 14 or 15 days. And by the end of it, I'm like, holy man, I'm barely like. Uh, like I'm barely getting out of here. And she's kind of going, man, this is actually when it's getting fun. So, um, and then snacks, you gotta have snacks, good quality. You snacks, gotta have man. good, good snacks. ones too. Always. So, always. I, I love, you know, man, I, there's two, two things I, I really appreciate about that answer. Like one is like never tell someone they can't do something. And, and that's awesome. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I a hundred percent agree. I, I, I've been lucky to like my, my sheep hunting partner, Jenny is, you know, it's the toughest woman, I, you know, toughest person I know. Um, she could destroy me on any mountain <laughs> with her fitness and like her drive. And, and, uh, and, you know, Mickey is like, yeah, just is the toughest woman, <laughs> like super mentally tough. Yeah. And they, so I took, I, I went on a mule deer hunt with uh, a colleague of mine, Jana, and she's, I don't know, like, I, I you know, I'm not supposed to talk, say these things, but this is a, we're talking science. So she's maybe a hundred and, 30 pounds that my, my, my friend Shelly, same body said Mickey's a hundred and hundred pounds soaking wet maybe. And, um, we went, we were hunting grasslands that we dropped down into the, uh, you know, in the, the flats there. And anyways, we ended up, Mickey got a deer and Johnna got a deer and we ended up packing these, these two mature mule deer, like five kilometers back up out of the hole that we got them out of. Right. And, their packs were like 75 pounds on oh. average, right? So uphill, like, and, and like, and we had sort of a plan to be like, okay, let, let's just do this in stages. Let's just like get them to the base of the hill. So we'll cross the flat and get them to the base. And then from there, we'll huff them up the hill. And tomorrow, we'll just like approach us with a bit of, and like, once we were rolling, man, like they were just machines, like just one foot after another. And just, oh, it was, it was so cool to see it. And like, and the part that I was processing, like we, like they we, they crushed it. We got these deer to the top, hung them up. You know, lots of good beers and good celebration. 
and uh and and then like i thought about it, i was like okay so if like if i was to put like 75 percent of my body weight on my back like i weigh 200 pounds and that doesn't take the math doesn't sound very good because like 150 pounds like there's no way man like i I die at 105 pounds like i die yeah. and it's like there's not then you know so i would say that women are definitely tougher like i think in terms of what they're like the the ratio that they can pack is higher than i think what what most well at least at least me anyways and a lot of a lot of people that i've hunted with so yeah no question there man i i just uh i'm looking forward to it it's gonna be a, a hoot and we've got a few ideas for how we're gonna pull this off and um well yeah. and and i totally agree and i say it all the time yeah if you're 120 pounds and you're packing around 60 pounds that's half your body weight if you put 100 and you put 90 pounds in a, in a 180 pound man i mean that 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 will slow a guy down to a crawl <laughs> yeah. um yeah I, I think the other thing too, just more tactical on hunting with your partner as a smaller person, we sort of have it set up and, and it probably doesn't apply it to a bigger animal animal like a caribou, but for sheep, goat, deer sized animals, Frankie is basically operating. She carries her own stuff. So she's got her own personal stuff, her own food, everything. I'm basically taking everything that I would take on a solo hunt. I'm taking the spotter, the tripod, the stove, the fuel, and then I sleep in a two-man tent anyways. So she basically can, and I tell her this all the time, she can, sometimes she feels bad if she's not keeping up. And I tell her, hey, I'd be out here by myself anyways, carrying the exact same stuff. It doesn't matter if it takes us an hour and a half instead of an hour. It does not matter. You're carrying your own stuff. You're along for the ride. And then if we are able to kill an animal, sheep-sized animal or something, She'll take all the gear. She'll take camp, everything, and I'll take the animal. Wow. So she carries a lot of the big volume, like tent and sleeping bags, all that stuff, and I'll just carry the animal. And so it actually works. It's super challenging for her. It's challenging for me. It works really well. Sometimes she's a little bit faster than me too, and then it's not the best to get super split up, but if we are poking along, she'll be – I'm usually throwing the pack down, hanging the meat, salting the cape, doing that kind of stuff. And she's going tent, two sleeping pads, two bags, mountain house boiling, coffee. You know, she's kind of doing, and we have this sort of division of labor that wasn't really designed with that intention, but we've done it on a couple of trips where it works really, really well. And then you just sort of know, and, and every time you have meat and things like that, your pack is like maxed out. Um, and it's sort of nice that we have camp just, just and sometimes if it's cold enough, you just throw the pack down, set up camp. Maybe you're just, jumping on the side of the trail, grabbing five hours of sleep and keep rolling. So we've done that too. Um, and just kind of encouraging, Hey, look, I'm going to be out here anyways. I'd be carrying all the same stuff. It's not, you're no hindrance, hindrance to me. So it's worked out good. Um, when we've done it like that. Yeah. Right on. Well, this is, I'm looking forward to this one. I, I've had you here for not quite an hour yet, but I'll, I'll try and not. Oh yeah. I'm talking too much. Hour. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, I, <laughs> no, it's great, man. It's, I think it's just been fun. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm learning stuff, but I, I did have a couple of thoughts that, uh, well, first off, and okay, I, I have two questions here and I, I, well, what, is, what is your favorite species to hunt currently? Uh, I mean, sheep, sheep for sure. I think stone sheep are probably one of the more challenging species of sheep. So they'd have to be right there, but um, 
I mean, I touched on it earlier. Mountains, almost hunting the mountains equally as much as the as the animal themselves. I mean, wherever the coolest, steepest, prettiest, most remote mountains are, usually there's sheep there. But I mean, if you're in New Zealand, there's tar there. If you're in uh, mid Asia, there's ibex and Marco Polo sheep there. I mean, that's sort of the jam. But um, yeah, I mean, stone sheep pretty damn hard to beat. Cool. Now I don't. I don't. Can you tell me what a slam is? <laughs> Like a like a sheep. Yeah, slam. well, it used to be called the Grand Slam, which uh, two, the two main. I mean, one was a conservation organization. It used to be called FNAS, Federation for North American Wild Sheep. I think in early the early two thousands they changed their name to the Wild Sheep Foundation. So they're a national uh, and international nonprofit that's focused on wild sheep habitat, sheep conservation, putting and keeping sheep on the mountain, essentially. And then they have their chapters, which Wild Sheep Society BC here in BC is a chapter and they have many other regional chapters and affiliates throughout. Um, at the time, there was another organization called Grand Slam, Grand Slam Ovis, who had what they called the Grand Slam, which was the four North American wild sheep, which is a doll sheep, stone sheep, bighorn sheep, desert bighorn sheep. Um, to, to harvest all those four species would be the Grand Slam. And this is actually a pretty crazy side story, but... but um, they actually, they kind of got in competition with each other and Grand Slam said, well, we came up with Grand Slam and we're copywriting it. So Wild Sheep Foundation said, okay, well, we'll just call it the four North American wild sheep. So that's what they call it. But um, that that's the, everybody in the sheep world still calls it Grand Slam or Slam because that's what it's been for, since it was a thing. So stone sheep, doll yeah. sheep, and then what are the other two? Ro- Rocky Mountain Bighorn. And then... Okay. It'd be desert sheep, which which there isn't any in BC. Some people would call California another species of sheep, California bighorn, which I I wouldn't call them that. Um, I think of them as Rockies. But um, then desert sheep, which are in the America Southwest, Mexico. Um, we don't have desert sheep in Canada. We got only guys that live in the snow. Okay, cool. And I, and you and you were one of the youngest people to to. To, to slam, <laughs> to, to have a grand slam as a, with a boat. Yeah, I was. I was the youngest many moons ago, but yeah. Um, is that something that you like set out to do or is that something you just kind of, just kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I, I set up to, I grew up sheep hunting. Um, I just had a dad who was, this is what he was into. I mean, he took me, was like so fortunate to go on some of these sheep hunts. And, and I mean, we grew up an hour from bighorn sheep country. So being able to access sheep hunting the way that we were able to access it um, was pretty fortunate. And then, yeah, I just sort of had killed a bighorn when I was young and um, got to go on a hunt with my brother and hunt dolls. And yeah, I just, it just, uh, I moved up to BC to go to university and could hunt stone sheep. And um, yeah, I just say super fortunate. I'm not really like a huge, I don't know, hunting accomplishments is kind of a weird thing, right? Because with, with enough time and money, you can kind of do anything. Um, but it, it's cool. I mean, people, yeah, I mean, people Google, sometimes Google my name and go, oh, that's really cool. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'd like to be recognized more for the film projects that we've done with uh, Movi and Bighorn Sheep and Domestic Sheep interactions or the stuff that we did that, that we sort of were both a part of, though we never worked on it together. Uh, about the sim deer study here 
And I mean, hopefully just being a good guy, not a complete asshole would be what I would want to be remembered for, not for kind of a hunting achievement, which is, it's cool. I mean, it's totally cool. I'm lucky. I'm not, not, uh, um, throwing that, uh, under the bus by any means, but, uh, it's more, I don't know. I mean, it's more hunting accomplishments is kind of weird. I mean, I, I don't know. It's sort of a, we've gotten ourselves into a weird place. Totally get it, man. Totally get it. And, 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 uh, to be honest, I, 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 I don't, I didn't know that about you so, <laughs> until I did the research. So I, I knew he was a guy that tells really cool stories in film and uh, is involved in lots of conservation projects. So that was something that I that I saw as I was digging around. So you are recognized as someone who's uh, having a good, uh, an important contribution to the don't world. Believe, don't and, believe uh, everything on the internet, though, too, right? <laughs> well, yeah, totally. But nonetheless, yeah, I mean, it, I, regardless, it is a, as much as it's uh, sheep hunting, no matter how much time and money you have, it's still really hard, and uh, and doing it with a bow is is also very hard. And uh, so, as much as it's not a, it's a, an accomplishment of killing stuff, but just an accomplishment of of you know effort and time dedicated to something you're passionate about. So, I, I think it's still it could, yeah, it's still pretty impressive just to be in a world where you can be in sheep country that much to enjoy those places and that's that's pretty cool yeah so, yeah i appreciate that Dylan. thanks man hey so okay i got a couple okay so uh, the so this piece that i saw from you you were talking about uh um you know just the, the gear that you bring on a trip and there was a couple things that i thought were really cool and i really want to like you know highlight them it, it, one is like i've never seen anybody talk about bringing a a, a pat a, it's like a for, uh, a, a target for your bow when going on an extended trip, like a little foam pad so you can shoot an arrow in the field and ensure that your bow was shooting true. When did you start doing that? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, about? something my dad started to spin up with a guy in Alberta who was making custom targets. And I'm trying to think back to the earliest iteration of that. Yeah, it might be 12 or 13 years ago. He just came up with a design that was, yeah, I mean, it's about, it's kind of changed over the years, but it used to be, I mean, I'm looking at a 16-inch laptop screen right okay. here. It used to be that, and then it became a sort of circle, an, an oct octagon. And then if you if you hang it in like a willow or something, the energy that it takes as an arrow strikes it, it'll swing the target and it'll actually absorb a lot of the energy rather than just blowing right through it if you have it set on the ground. A lot of times if you're hunting in the mountains, okay, yeah, it makes sense. you might be around rocks and things like that where you're not able to, you're going to blow an arrow up if you just shoot it into um, the ground. Although sometimes you're able to find some really nice soft black shale and you could take shots that way. But I mean, it might weigh, it might weigh eight to 10 ounces. So it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't weigh nothing, but it's relatively light. It's multi-purpose. You can use it as a sitting pad to glass. You can cut meat up on it. You can have a little platform that you set your stove on and you cook on it. And so it is justified for me because there's so much that goes into these trips. I mean, you've spent time and money and you've shot your bow all year and you've dialed your gear in. And um, of course, you know, we'd like to be successful. And that 99.9% that .9 you've gone all the way there and maybe you, you draw back and you feel as if you made a perfect shot, but the mountains are just so unforgiving on, on anything, but, but archery equipment and rifles are no different. I mean, 
you just beat them up and drag them through willows and fall. I mean, you can fall on your bow on your back and just completely, you know, full full weight of the body in the pack is landing on it. You can slip and hit your sight. And so it's it's two things. One, it's sort of just staying because archery is a little bit of muscle memory and a little bit of just kind of mental fortitude of going through your process. But for me, it's nice to be able to shoot just a couple of arrows a day just to kind of be in the zone when that time comes. And then the other thing is making sure your bow is still on because you just want to have that complete confidence that you can make the shot count when you have the opportunity. And really without that target, sometimes there's no way of doing that. And um, yeah, I mean, I just had had a lot of success in the sense that it's mentally such a, such a nice thing to have. I mean, when people miss stuff with a gun or bow, the first thing is, oh, let me, let me shoot my gun, make sure it's on. Let me shoot my bow. Was it on? Was I holding right behind the shoulder? Or did I flinch? Did I have the yards right? It just eliminates one factor out of your system, which is, mm-hmm. hey, my weapon is 100% dialed. I can make this shot. I've made this, I've made this 60-yard shot in my backyard a thousand times. My equipment is 100% working. Focus on the shot, draw back stay calm, you know, go through your shot process. And um, even if it was logistically possible with a rifle, I mean, of course, a rifle makes a big loud sound. So you're not going to shoot it if there's animals around. But, um, you know, people do dry firing and things like that with a rifle. And, of course, um, yeah, if unfortunately you do miss, it's like you shoot the rifle right away. Is this thing on? And so that little target is just a huge, 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 huge confidence boost where if you do break something on your bow, there's no archery shot. I mean, there's just no, you're not getting another bow. There's nothing you can do. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a confidence thing. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I, love, I mean, just that investing that 10 ounces in something that builds confidence and, and ultimately, you know, improves the ethics around taking a shot on an animal is, is, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not super familiar with, I, I have a bow and I'm, and I'm, um, kind of every day I wish I lived somewhere that I could just step out my back door and shoot it every yeah. day. And I've got a bit of a plan for that because I try to migrate a little bit up to the Sunshine Coast where I do have a spot where I can um, just step out and shoot the bow. So I'm, I'm excited about having that. You got a garage? Until I, I think I have that. Uh, I know I don't. And I and I live like in Vancouver, yeah, yeah. Vancouver. Like there's no like – I've looked at my backyard like so many times. I have a, a pretty good yeah. run. But like there's just – this is just <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You can yeah. see the headlines yeah, now. I can't do it. So. I live across the street from the cemetery in yeah. Vancouver, and the and and like I, I'm always like it's just like the perfect yeah. place. To <laughs> no like one's ever there. Set up and you just like put your target on top of a tombstone, oh, yeah. and like yeah, you could shoot out to 100 yards, no problem. <laughs> There's probably some sick way that you you, you can get it. paid to control rabbits or invasive species or something and shoot your bow. <laughs> Ah, you know, there's coyotes yeah. everywhere that are eating up the cats in the neighborhood. I'm sure that'd be the favorite. Yeah, maybe you sw- you flip it around and like get people to support yeah. you if you're doing it. Yeah. Well, we just live in it. We live yeah. down pretty downtown Kelowna ish. Um, and I have a target in my garage and I just shoot. I mean, it's corner to corner. It's seven yards or something. And I shoot up at my uncle's place at his okay. orchard and things like that. But I do think it is. That's why I asked if you have a garage because I think for me, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're making a six yard shot or a 60 yard shot. It's a shot, right? I mean, you can, you can, yeah. you can put that arrow on a thumbtack and it's, I mean, you can shoot a bow with no sight on it. You can shoot a bow with your eyes closed and have, I mean, some people would argue even more benefit because you're actually thinking about aiming 
pulling through the shot, all your shooting mechanics, rather than worried about where your arrow hits. I mean, it's called blank bailing, right? I mean, it's like that's what people do when they have target panic or they want to work on something. In the offseason, they just shoot blank targets. They don't even care where they hit. They take their sight off their bow. They'll close their eyes. They'll do all kinds of stuff. Mm. So that's, I mean, and that actually started, I switched from, which is like a, a wrist strap release, which is index finger activated release, yeah. to a, what would be called a thumb a thumb release, which is, maybe you've seen them, but they're... Yeah, I've just okay. seen them. Yeah, recently. so they're kind of becoming really popular, and I sort of said, hey, what's what's with this thing? And during, during COVID, when things were kind of restricted on travel, I was just shooting in the garage. And it was awesome because I was, I was trying to learn a new skill. I wasn't trying to shoot at 100 yards. And I just kind of carried that routine into into today because and you, you can't get out and shoot for an hour every day or drive to the range or even maybe it's snowing outside. Right now it's freezing. I can shoot three arrows in my garage when I wake up, turn on the coffee machine, it takes 10 minutes to heat up, shoot 10 arrows, go back, make a ridiculously large, strong cup of coffee and go about the day. And so um, I think that that's something, I mean, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I mean, it's New Year, you know, people are thinking about resolutions and how they think about things. And my wife and I were just talking about this. We try to do a cross-country ski on New Year's Day every every year. And we were doing our little annual thing and slightly hungover. And um, it seems like you want to make these huge leaps and bounds and become way better and the best at this. Or I, I want to strike these huge achievements when really, I mean, all you really want to do is just get a tiny, 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 tiny bit better over the course of a long period of time, right? And all of a sudden you look back and go, yeah. wow, I was there and now I'm here. Holy shit. And so I think with archery, I mean, that is archery to a T and it could be extended to hunting and other parts of your life. I mean, you just don't have to worry about all these things you want to achieve. It's like, how can I be a little bit better today, a little bit better on this shot? And all of a sudden a year goes by, oh, wow, I've actually improved quite a bit. So don't necessarily get tripped up in the, because I do this all the time too, where it's like, I need to be doing this crazy training session. I need to be at the gym seven times a week. I need to be shooting my bow one hour a day. It's like, I could shoot 10 arrows, 10 really good arrows. I could go have a 20 minute workout at the gym down the street and have a really good workout. You know, and those sorts of things that start to apply into your life. Um, yeah. Something to think about. Yeah, man. I was just, there was a, there was a, I saw a post about build skills. Don't set goals. Yeah, I you love know, that. as you go into this year, like, like, cause I mean, goals you fail at, but if you're building skills, like you, however incremental it might be, you're built skills and that will eventually bring you to a different place. And, but yeah, goals are tough, man. You don't know, you know, just, uh, set goals. It kind of beats you up sometimes. You don't, don't get there. Right. It can be a bad cycle. Of, you know. Um, okay. I got a couple specific questions cause I think you might be the right person to ask on this. Uh, how much of your sort of weight allocation do you invest in a tent for say uh, an August September sheep hunt like in that time of year? What's your threshold for comfort? Yeah. Um August or September. Oh man. I wrote an article exactly about this topic and I I feel like by the time I got to the end of the article I was maybe more confused than I was supposed to be at the start. Um <laughs> I like to, oh man, that's a good question. I'm trying to say something that doesn't get me into trouble one way or another. Um, I would say my answer is it depends, which is a bullshit answer. So there are factors though. I mean, um, 
I think of a tent as, I would say a couple of big factors. One, how risky and am, I, am I willing to be? And what I mean by that is how much time am I out there for? Who am I with? What other gear pieces are we bringing that can kind of cover our ass? Um, is this a all or nothing once in a lifetime trip or is it more exploratory? And that's when I start to test out lighter and lighter gear and strip, I mean, strip stuff down. So, um, oh man, I like, a, I like a bunch of tents from Hilleberg. I think they make really great stuff and, um, are focused on making tents and nothing else. Um, my tent for a solo tent is kind of running around three pounds these days and, and even less. A, a NIAC is a, is a small cross pole tent that they make. That's really, really nice that they call it a one and a half man tent. Um, Frankie and I have spent probably way, way over a hundred days in it. Um, and it's wicked. It's good for small people or one person and a dog. Um, the downside is, is there's only one entrance. So if you got to take a whiz, you got to jump over the other person. Um, but oh man, I hate to put numbers on things. I just like, I hate to put numbers on how heavy should your pack be or how many calories should you bring? Or it, it's sort of, well, let me ask 15 other questions, which is how long, who are you with? What does this hunt mean to you? What does this hunt mean to that person? I mean, if I'm, if I'm hunting with somebody who I know that they paid, maybe they paid a ton of money for this hunt and, um, I'm photographing them or if I'm using, I have a guide's license so I can guide for different outfits. And um, I'm bringing like the best tent that I have. I'm going heavy on tent because I'm trying to enrich that. I'm trying to enrich that potential to be successful, but also the experience. I mean, some of my favorite moments have been when it's really crappy outside and you're in the tent playing crib. It's like, I bring a deck of cards. Let's play cards. We got a three man tent. We got lots of room. We got tons of food. This is great. If I'm like by myself, I kind of care less about that. Um, so I mean, yeah, sorry, man. I, I, I don't, I'm not giving you like a straight answer, but I mean, I, I tents have gotten quite nice and light. And so August and September, you can push it a little bit. I think you can be under five pounds, um, for, for a two person, for a solo tent, you can be under three pounds. I wouldn't push it crazy far into the tarp shelter, um, crazy crazy light 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 stuff because sheep hunting you just like don't want to be limited where you can camp and i see a lot of guys that have popularized the tp style tents that have a stove in them and they're wicked light and, and you know you can have heat and you can dry your stuff out and i, I get that thinking that's really cool sheep hunting for me is best done backpack style no donkeys no horses sorry donkey and horse people mm-hmm. on the top of the mountain running ridges, looking on both sides, getting to vantage points, never get off the top of the mountain unless you've got to go get water. I mean, live up there, live up where the sheep are. You just, it just seems, and it's, it seems like it's going to increase your odds of seeing something. It's more fun. I like it better. Um, and in that case, you're going to be in more exposed weather situations where you're going to get hit hard with wind, hard with rain. You're going to have to carve out a little spot in a sheep bed to put a tent down and so that's where that's where your freestanding tent or your kind of heavier four four and a half pound tent, um, maybe even above five pounds if you're a bigger person um, and like to have a little bit more room, or you're bringing a dog or something like that. That's where that shines through. It's like 
yeah, you could go lighter. You could save two pounds on your tent, but then you can't camp where I can camp. You got to go down or um, you're not as comfortable mm-hmm. as I am. I'm staying here and you're going home. And, and I've, I've shaved it kind of all different ways, but I think long distance, 10, 14 day hunts, it's not a bad thing to be slightly heavier on a tent because it's going to keep you out there. It's going to make you have a little bit more fun. And I think that you can pitch them wherever you need to pitch them and not have to come back down to sort of a sheltered alpine um, area in the trees or something like that. Yeah, right on. No, I think it's a, it's a conversation that I've had with myself a lot and, and I've got my own, like I've had some really like amazing experiences in that, in the MSR Hubba yeah. Hubba series and just it's it's just survived quite a bit of stuff that i've been in um and i i have, I have adopted the idea of of the tp tents from the yep. outdoors guys and had some just it's a game changer like being in those tents like it's like wow i can like i can it's super light and i can drive my stuff out and there's this whole other reality but i don't think it's i don't like the idea of being in a on a ridge in a in a tent with flat yeah. walls and um that needs to be sort of guide out to be structurally sound. It just, that's don't know if that's the right. Yeah. That could be difficult for sure. I'll, so. I'll, I'll send you this article too. And, and you could repurpose it. Or if you do show notes or something like that, you could pull from it or maybe make me sound smarter than I am. Cause I, I feel like I wrote all this stuff down, but it was, it was a lot of asking a lot of questions and um, yeah, what your priorities are and, and things like that. But um, for for you and Mickey, I mean, that Rogan is really good. That's a two man from Hilleberg. Um, the I've, I've gone to their three season tents, like their three season tents because they're, they're like Hilleberg the three season tents are kind of three and a half and, and they will never tell you this, but they're four season tents. I mean, I've had them in snowstorms and um, have never had a problem. I've had zero problems with, with Hilleberg tent in terms of failing me at any point. Um, so I, 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 and I kind of don't love recommending putting numbers to things and also kind of saying, you need to buy, this is the best rain gear of all time. It's like, look for these features in a rain gear. Look for it to be this heavy. Look for it to be this packable. Who's making it? What's your budget? Um, who can you borrow from? You don't need to buy all this stuff. I mean, you can kind of cobble it together, but um, yeah, I am a Hilbert guy. I have been for a long time. I think they're a great company and um, more of an investment, but uh, it ten, tents... Tents are kind of a buy, buy nice or, or buy twice kind of a thing, and whatever brand you choose. But um, and it's a thing that's gonna last. A tent is gonna last quite a long time, and they're not coming out with new tents every year. I mean, they're just they're they're kind of a hard piece of gear that doesn't get a ton of evolution because they're not doing like the textile industry with making rain gear and synthetics and things like that. Like, there's so much development behind that, and they can push that stuff so far. Tents are. Tents are a great tent 10 years ago, honestly, is a great tent. Um, it's a great tent right now. So it's something you can. And it's why Hilleberg doesn't come out with new tents every single year. They don't just change the color or change a little feature. You know, there'll be years that they don't come out with anything. Uh, they might come out with a slightly different version of the same tent that they have. Or it was a two-man. They've given a three-man option. But, um, yeah, tent's a good investment. I think tent's a pretty good investment to throw a chunk of change down in and really, you know, have it working really, really well for – for 10 years and, and maybe even a little bit more. Yeah. Right on. No, I, I'm a big, I love, yeah, I have a tent for a lot. 
have too many tents. Yeah, quiver. Sure, and I and there's yeah, I took a quiver of tents, and I yeah, but the the one the one that is like you know where I have been on that ridge, and and man, it's like yeah, you want to make sure you you could you want the best bait tent possible, but there is the reality that it it can run upward, you know, it pushes past that six pound range that yeah. kind of gets you to where you're like, oh, this is a, like, I have looked at the Hillebergs maybe 10 years ago, yeah. maybe a little longer. And, and just the weight ratio of like, oh God, that seems like quite heavy yeah. for, for, for a tent. But, um, but then again, I've been beat to shit quite a few times since then in the mountains, which makes that, you know, six pounds look a lot yeah. lighter and, uh, or whatever that threshold would be. Yeah, right? yeah. So no, actually that's, that's, that's awesome contribution. Um. Yeah. Okay. 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 One more no. Yeah. Question. Shoot. Sorry. I'll, I should just answer. Yeah, I, I should have just said three point eight pounds. <laughs> Done. Perfect. Got. Moving on. Moving on. No. That's the that's the conversation I want to have because like because I I think that like there is this big push towards ultralight like hunting and yeah. and I and I and I see people heading down that road that just you know haven't asked those twelve questions you're talking about like have, having gone through the process of why they're making that decision they're just going for the lightest gear because that's what it says it's this amount of ounces and then and they're going out with a 32 pound pack for a 10 day trip and I just like I don't know how like I, I see people talk about their pack weights I'm like that's insane because there's no way you can be that much lighter than me and still do this safely yeah. or have enough food to eat or whatever I agree. Right? um so so I, it always baffles me a little bit um, and I think, yeah, and I, and I think as far as, you know, someone, you know, just as my park ranger and me and wanting to promote, you know, mountain safety and, uh, and, and the work that we do with Eat Wild, the same, same. Totally. So, um, so with, so what are some things that you like what people, what, what makes your pack heavy that makes your pack a little heavier, <laughs> maybe a little safer, or that maybe just something that someone makes fun of you for, like for bringing one of your, you know, another person who spends a lot of time in the mountains that might edge towards that ultralight mentality. Oh, great question. I've had a couple of these over the years. Um, probably the, the a couple stand out, but there was a time where I was bringing a Helinox chair, two pound Helinox chair when they came out with those. Whoa! Okay. We did a it was a twenty five day sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories, and I and I it was with six guys. We were filming we were filming this this project, and uh, I said I'm bringing this chair. I don't care. I'm bringing it. And everybody had tons of camera gear, so we were super heavy. Anyways, it's funny. It's funny how you want to get, if you're at 39 pounds, you want to get to 38. If you're at 90, you don't really give a shit. You just throw it in. I mean, and that's kind of what's dangerous. When you do get to that level, you just start going, yeah, I'll, actually, I'll throw in a six pack of beer. Why not? I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll drink those on the first night. But um, yeah, I mean, where was I going with this, Dylan? Sorry. <laughs> oh, I, I was just looking for a couple of items that you, know, oh, yeah. that, you that you do pack. That oh, that, that, you know, you're, not, you're in the Northwest Territories on a on a three. Yeah, yeah. Until I, I went off. <laughs> Helinox chair yeah. was was one thing, and, and those are two pounds. I've kind of kicked that out now. I just don't need the creature comfort. If I was guiding, if I was guiding ninety or hundred days a year, and I was with a client that I knew that I was going to be faster than, I would bring that chair. I got a buddy who's a guide up in the territories, and he brings a two person tent and a chair, and he is. You know, I'm sure you've sat in one of those chairs before. They're, they're wicked comfortable. And I was sort of toting, Unreal. hey, you're going to sit in this chair, be super comfortable, and find more animals. And so places maybe like the desert or stone sheep hunting where it's just hard to see animals, you're comfortable. You last five more minutes, 
at each spot, maybe you see something that you wouldn't normally see. So that was like my theory. I don't think you need the chair. I've kind of ditched the chair. I used to bring a four ounce umbrella from Snow Peak, a little pack umbrella. Um, at the time, people were using them to do things such as the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail. These through hikers were just going so light. They would actually either ditch their rain gear or just, just have super minimal rain gear. And they would just hike with an umbrella. I wasn't using the umbrella to hike with, but I was using it for in the desert for a sunshade. So you're sitting there glassing, you pop this umbrella yeah, yeah. or for camera equipment. So for filming something or changing lenses, yes, you have a camera body bag, a waterproof, well, it's not waterproof, water resistant sort of basically is a, a glorified shower cap that goes all over your camera and doesn't really work. But um, when you wanted to change lenses or do something, you just popped up this little umbrella. It was nothing. And I got made fun of a shit ton for that doing some different gear seminars. Um, now, I guess these days, uh, I'd say in the mid mid to later season, down booties, just because you look ridiculous. I mean, you have these little blue Smurf colored booties that that uh, you just look like a total dork, but um, game changer. Uh, and definitely when it starts to get cold, you're gonna, you're gonna I mean, Crocs are sort of the, the standby gold, gold standard of footwear for camp. Usually bring Crocs. Um, but then at a certain point, bring down booties either in addition or instead, probably instead. And that's the camp footwear that, that allows your feet to breathe and be comfortable and have all of those nice creature comforts, but it also bumps you up in your sleeping bag a good little bit because the first thing that gets cold in your sleeping bag is your, is your feet, right? So you sleep with those down booties and, and you get maybe another five degrees out of, out of your bag. Um, what else? Deck of cards. Always bring a deck of cards. Um, do you go for the mini ones? No, full size. Full size. I do full size. <laughs> uh, probably food. Just a lot of food. Quite a bit of food. Probably more food than most people. Um, and we noticed too when I was hunting with Frankie this summer and over the last couple of years. We have so let's say it's about two pounds of food per person per day. That's probably on the heavier side, but let's just say for easy math, that's what we are. We can have 10 days of food. That's 20 pounds of food each. And we've, we've done this a number of times where it starts to get to day eight and we can split freeze-dried dinners. So she doesn't actually need that much food, especially when your stomach kind of shrinks and you just kind of become, you get away from this three meal a day thing and feeling that being hungry is bad. I mean, being hungry is fine. You can be hungry. And so after day seven or day eight or day nine, and we're, we're hunting a drainage or something and we're getting further and further and further and further. And, and we want to extend the hunt. The weather's good. We're seeing animals. We want to get another two or three or four days. We did that in the sheep hunt this year. We had 10 days of food and we stretched it to 14 because we split. We started splitting freeze dries. We started splitting our food. So what I'm, what I'm spitting out here is if you go heavier on the food, you're there for 10 days, you can actually stretch. You know in your mind, I have 10 fat days. I have 10 heavy days. I can stretch it to 12. If we go to the end of the earth and eat every last morsel of food and we kill an animal, we can eat, eat the animal coming out. We, we can make it work. Um, and so I'm heavy. I'm a heavier on food guy too, because it makes it a little bit more enjoyable. And of course, each day you're eating that out of your pack. You're eating that two pounds yeah, a day out of your pack. Every day. So it doesn't really just, it just doesn't, I just, I've, I can honestly say, I don't know if I've ever regretted bringing too much food. But I've definitely regretted not bringing it enough because you just don't have the fuel or 
like I said, you just kind of look at your pack, you do the pack dump and you're, you look and there's three days of food left and you're just kind of going, oh man, we got two Snickers bars, a Mr. Noodles and freeze dried. How are we going to make this work? Whereas you want to be dumping that out and going, oh wow, we could actually, this is three days of food, but we could squeak it to five. We have a whole new hunt. We know this whole area. We've seen animals going that way. Let's go. Or let's take the long way back to the pickup point and hunt our way out because we kind of just bought ourselves an extra day or two. And whether or not that ends up being the factor that contributes to a successful hunt, it, it might. I mean, it did this year for us because we did stay a little bit longer than we probably would normally have. Um, but the, the, the food is your days out there. So you can buy yourself more days, buy yourself more time and stay longer. Well, and the other thing that's, I mean, you, you're, you're, if you're relying on a pickup, yeah. you're, Pickup may not show up if the weather isn't totally. Right. And so, you know, hopefully you've got a cash back wherever you left from. But if you're going lake to lake or something, then yeah, that food that's in your bag has to last you an extra couple of days if you're sitting next to a lake uh, waiting around. No so. question. Yeah, and I think we talked to different transporters, pilots, and things like that that put people in the backcountry, and they're sort of sometimes flabbergasted that people don't have extra food. Or the, the conversation I've had, I don't know if you've had this, but. The pilots have been, has been, yeah, I mean, people, they have the inreach. They have all the gear. They look on the internet. They find the stuff. They go out there. And they're kind of, those tools and that access to information and, and the connectivity with the world that we have through satellite texting kind of allows people, not to get into dangerous situations, but just to kind of get into situations where you would just never in a million years have somebody just kind of go, yep, I can do this. And if I get in trouble, I'm just going to hit this SOS button and the helicopter's coming. It's like that is not the case. Like that is definitely not the case. And, or if I run out of food, I mean, I've read a handful of stories where people are out of food and they hit their, they hit the SOS button. Oh, I'm, I'm in an emergency situation. I need food and, I, and I'm out. And it's sort of one of those things that's not, that's not what's designed for. It's designed for you have a catastrophic injury or something like that. So the food thing, yeah, I mean, it should be able to get you in and get you out. It's kind of a safety thing. Yeah, absolutely, man. Going heavy. Cool. Okay, well, I should wrap this up. Yes. This is going way over time, and I appreciate having you for so long. What, what are you excited about in, in 2022? Oh, man. What, uh, what are you fired what up about? What am I fired up about? Um, we've had a trip that's been delayed two years now or one year officially uh, in Greenland. So we're going to do a, a trip, oh, cool. um, a caribou hunt with the Yeti guys and fish for some Arctic char, which will be Really, really, really cool. I was just kind of really curious about that part of the world. So that's coming up this summer. Um, what else am I fired up about? Oh, we got some cool wildlife stuff that we're working on. I think we're speaking of caribou. Caribou sort of keeps bubbling to the surface. Going to work on some caribou, some sort of storytelling around caribou. The Columbia North herd um, that the Spotson Nation is kind of working on documenting an oral history of of caribou and, and how many caribou and how caribou could be doc sort of managed and um, documenting that because a lot of that history is, is through spoken word. And so we're going to film that um, and, and perhaps do some sort of documentary with it, but the, the actual nation wants it just to have. Um, so yeah, really that stuff is really just, I mean, that's, we're just so lucky. Like hunting has been this thing, but then there's all these offshoots by just being in, wildlife conservation world and meeting these people and having friends who are biologists and park rangers and, and just people that work in those arenas has led us down to some some cool pathways so probably those couple of things i guess it's the year of the caribou you're going caribou hunting too 
I think so. Yeah, that's the, that's the plan. I I don't know. Yeah, I'm excited about it. We're, we're, we got a bit of an idea, but yeah, we're just starting our our research now to kind of nail down where we're going to go or how we're going to do it. And that's always fun. So maybe you stay on after the call here. And yeah, we'll just uh, have a bit of a, a offline conversation and. Uh, Probably the stuff that people really want to hear about. But uh, yeah, you can subscribe. Uh, uh, this has been fun, man. You can subscribe. Yeah. You can do that. What is it? Fans yeah. only? Have you heard of this? It's like, uh... yeah, fans only. <laughs> no, yeah. nobody wants. No, for hunting. Nobody tips. wants yeah. to see yeah, that. Totally. No, this has been a hoot, man. I'm really glad to get some time with you. Um, hey, actually, you know, we should mention this because our, our mutual friend Chris uh, put together a, a really cool documentary on mule deer called. Um, a community for the wild, and, and you you got involved. You actually shot a lot of that yep. footage. Yep, we shot the fawn collaring that was happening in Grand Forks and the Okanagan and yeah I mean got to got to be a part of uh of that and, and yeah Chris is Chris is the mastermind and uh did, did a pretty remarkable job in a challenging situation where people were not necessarily able to travel and and you know he was having to scramble to get stuff filmed but um yeah I, I'm really happy with how he put that together and, and the edit that came out so um, excited to see, excited yeah. to see it because, um, we need more stuff like that. And, uh, a relatable one too. I mean, everybody kind of has a bit more familiar with deer and mule deer and here in the Okanagan, you see them in orchards, you see them at the park. And it's sort of, a lot of people is Chloe, who's the, the woman doing her PhD in that film. And she's here at UBC Okanagan. She sort of laughs that people say, well, you're studying mule deer decline. The There's tons of mule deer in my, in my orchard. And, it's sort of kind of reframing the conversation. Well, yeah, they're actually not supposed to be there. They're supposed to be on their main Alpine range, which is completely logged or burned by forest fires, or they've been pushed around by predators, or they've been have this access here in the Okanagan, which is tons of logging roads and, and, and resource extraction roads where, where there's sight lines for predators and hunters and things to just sort of move all those animals around when normally they're supposed to be kind of able to migrate and, and, uh, live a little bit more undisturbed and um so she's studying the the factors of the decline of of mule deer along with um, another phd student and uh yeah just sort of like that that shift of well i don't get it it seems to be lots of deer or there's lots of this or that it's like those animals are supposed to be in in the wilderness they're supposed to be thriving there and, and they're kind of on these weird fringe urban interaction zones that uh you know they're not actually naturally supposed to be there we're actually in in their ground. I mean, we built up into their hillsides and, and, uh, into their habitat. So, um, yeah, that, that film yeah, is going to be cool. Beautiful winter range, man. It's uh, yeah, that, so, so that, that film is, is called the community for the wild, uh, community for the wild project. And it's, uh, it just got released, uh, on the Telus TV network. So if you go, if you have a Telus subscription, you can find it there. And I'm pretty sure if you just Google community for the, for the wild, you'll find it there and, and you get a little snapshot of what, what Adam's been doing. And I, I'd encourage you to just Google Adam, Adam Foss and, and see some of the other storytelling there. And, and if people want to find you, Adam, how do, how do they, how do they find you? Um, I'm, we have a, our little website is foss.media, no.coms or .cas, although we have to probably update that, uh, in all our free time. My Instagram is my last name, fossman8, the number eight. That's probably where I'm most active. Um, you can find me at various uh, sheep conservation events, probably. I mean, you can find me at be down at the sheep show in Reno here coming up in a, a week, a little over a week. If Sheep Society BC gets going this spring, I'm not sure if they're going to have an event. Who knows? Flip a coin. Um, 
yeah, I'm poking around, and uh, fortunately our work gets out there through cool documentary stuff and brands like Sick of Gear and Yeti and Matthews and Hilberg and Gerber and, and brands that uh, support what we do. So we're lucky, man. We're, 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 we're the lucky ones. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, living the dream, man, and thanks for sharing your, some of your adventures and thoughts around uh, gear and whatnot. And hang on the call here, and we'll just have a debrief after. But uh, thanks Yeah, so thanks much, for having me, Hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. There are tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast that'd be a great help to us and more importantly share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about so thanks for doing that until next time eat well and wild well.